0: This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reineck. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. So with some market uh, volatility, let us call it, here in August of 2019, it's good to consult with the uh, father of value investing, Ben Graham, as we continue to discuss his uh, definitive book on value investing, The Intelligent Investor. And I didn't think I would find either of these uh, next two chapters to be very interesting. Chapter two is on um, the investor and inflation. And then chapter three is just like the history of the stock market. And, um, but with everything going on right here and uh, some value stocks starting to appear and people interested again in gold, these chapters suddenly started to make some sense now reading them all these years later. So in the first a chapter about inflation, we really haven't discussed it much at all on this podcast or basically on any podcast because inflation has been so muted over the past couple of decades, really, that most people aren't really factoring it in in their investing. But he does because by the 1970s, he had experienced um, certain bouts of inflationary um, activity, so to speak. And so he does believe that investors should take it into account. And then he gives a couple ideas about how to do it. Um, but first, he starts like looking back in 1915, and he covers the first the 55 years that he was investing. And um, he says... During those years, there has been a lot of inflation, and the largest dose was actually between 1915 and 1920, when the cost of living nearly doubled. Yes, it's hard for us to imagine this, but yes, only within five years. and uh, But the av- average rise for this whole 55 years was 2.5%, which is close to the Fed's limit that they're looking for, which is about 2%. But you also had a spike of inflation in the late 1960s. So in 1965 through 1970, it was 4.5%, much higher than what we, anyone probably listening to this podcast can remember that experiencing. And then, um, you know, we had the big inflationary decade that happened right after the Ben Graham part of the book was done. And now the the new updated version looks back at because from nineteen seventy three to nineteen eighty two, that is considered the most inflationary period in, you know, basically the last 130 years, if not longer. And the annualized rate of inflation during that decade was nine percent. So this is when interest rates soared because uh Ch- Fed chairman Volcker raised rates to try to to take out inflation and so but it still averaged the 9%. Um so we act like, oh, it's never going to come back. But it was not that long ago when there was this big bout of inflation. So that's why everybody, including the Fed, stays on alert for it to happen again. Um again, he talks about uh, what happens to a stock portfolio and earnings during these uh, rates of inflationary periods. And um, some of that is kind of interesting, but he also goes into um, how stocks have outpaced inflation for most of this time. So since 1926, Uh, He talks about 64 five-year periods um, through 2002. So this is in the updated version. And in those 50 of the five-year periods, stocks did outpace inflation. So that was 78% of the time you did better um, in stocks than you did in uh, anything else trying to beat the inflation, but there was still, you know, this big significant time period when it did not. So what are his recommendations for handling the inflation part of us, you know, your portfolio basically. And one of them is what's back in the scene right now, not really for inflationary reasons, but maybe just as a safe haven. And that is gold. But he talks about it, Ben Graham did, as a mistrust of the currency. And that's what you buys gold. Of course, this was the era before anything like Bitcoin or the cryptocurrencies were out there, but gold has been the safe haven. But he talks about it here. He says for um, 35 years, okay, from up until 1972. So for 35 years, it started at $35 an ounce. And at the end of those 35 years, it was at $48 an ounce. (laughs) So over 35 years, you saw a rise of 35% on that investment. So for long periods of time, gold and silver usually, because they usually follow each other, don't really do much. They're not really the place to like hold out and hang out. But by the early 1970s, again, of course, um, gold, started to take off in this big inflationary period. And then that's when investors really saw an outside gain. But investors tend to look at these periods when there's some kind of anomaly in what an asset class has done as that being the norm. So for many years after gold kind of peaked in the early 80s, people were still buying gold throughout the 80s even into the 90s before they finally you know threw in the towel and if they own some and i do know some people that own gold and silver they own the bars like in their closets they just basically kind of held on to them and they were just sitting in the closet for like a decade or two decades while it went nowhere It now has, again, rebounded, but um, that's a long time to have an asset that's not doing anything. It's not even giving you a dividend yield. Uh, So Jason Zwig recommends limiting it only to 2% of your portfolio and because there will be ultimately these times when it will outperform like it did in the 1970s, and it might surge like 100%. And so those years, even just 2% of the portfolio will help boost your overall portfolio, but he doesn't recommend um, going, you know, a lot more than that. So what should you do now? You don't have to own the bars anymore. You don't have to own the coins. You don't have to buy like a, you know, get a lockbox or some kind of safe, you know, dug into your, your backyard or something to put all this stuff in because now we have ETFs and some of them actually hold the physical gold. So that's my recommendation. If you're looking to have a little bit of a gold position, I know many of you are looking at the miners right here as well. And there are some ETFs that track the gold miners in addition, obviously to the stocks, but um, those don't always move with the price of gold. And they don't always capture the entire gold move because they're still businesses. They have labor costs. They have to drill. There might be environmental issues. (laughs) There's all these things going on. They have to actually get the gold and the silver and whatever else they're mining out of the ground. These have uh, costs and issues. So those stocks aren't again, always the best place to go. So that's why I, if I'm using it as a bet against inflation, and maybe even safety, would want to just own the physical gold. And that ETF is the GLD, the ticker's GLD, that's tied to the physical gold. So keep that in mind too when you're looking at all the gold ETFs because um, I prefer to hold that one. Now, another area he said that can fight inflation is the TIPS, the treasury inflation thingy that you can buy. I used to own these. When the housing bubble was going on and I thought inflation was going to make its comeback about 15 years ago, but no, that has not worked either. This These like protect you somewhat from inflation, but it's been a really long haul here too, so I don't really recommend those either for most like novice investors right now, but REITs is another area that he recommends as uh, inflation fighters, and that is real estate. Now, you don't have to go out and buy a house or a condo or something to get access to real estate. You can own a REIT. But I just took a look at what are the most basic ones. So you can own the REIT themselves. It's kind of like owning the gold miner themselves. And that's the company that owns the real estate. Or you can own an ETF with a collection of those REITs in it. And for, again, the average investor, that is a better method just get some real estate exposure versus you having to figure out which REITs are the good ones, which ones you're interested in, because they cover a whole wide range of real estate. Some things you might not even realize that um, you can get these REITs in, including the pot stocks, as we've talked about in the past here. So um, you can own a, a real estate company that invests in the space where they're growing the cannabis. So... I chose just a general uh, Vanguard real estate ETF. The ticker is VNQ. The expense ratio is just 0.12 with this one. So that's pretty low for these. And this one has 189 REIT stocks in it that is invested in there. And some of them are the big names you would recognize, like Avalon Bay, they do apartment buildings, equity residential, that's also apartments, public storage. So those storage places where we put all of our junk, Simon Property Group is in there. And I took a look at what areas, because this is key too, if you're going to buy one of these ETFs, what area of real estate are they in? So specialized real estate REITs are um, 31% of the portfolio, I think it is. And so that's pretty big, but that would be, I believe, stuff like public storage. These storage REITs and stuff are the specialized ones. Then they have 14.4% in residential. 12.9% is in retail. So that's something to keep in mind, too. If you're you're scared about the mall, um, then you might not want one that has as much exposure to the retail, or if you think that is overdone and that these mall operators know what they're doing and that the mall isn't going to die, then maybe you want something with more. I don't know, but that's what you need to be looking at with some of these ETF REITs. And then offices are 9.3% and then a whole bunch of other different various real estate areas are also in there. So keep that in mind too, when you're looking at some of these bigger REITs, uh, ETF REITs that are a collection of these, these REITs because you're going to be in different areas depending on which one you're picking out. So the yield on this one is 3.4%, which is pretty, um, that's pretty good for something where I'm looking to fight inflation and I'm looking for maybe some uh, safety defensive areas, maybe. Um, I looked at some of their returns. So 3% annual uh, or three-year annualized is about 4%. So this has lagged a little bit over the last couple of years, but the 10-year return since 2009 is 15.46% over 10 years. I'm not sure if that includes the, the dividend in that return or not, but that's pretty solid there. You're not uh, complaining about that one. So keep REITs in mind while you're considering any of these inflation because it's something that is overlooked by many of us because I myself don't own any REITs. But after I do these podcast episodes, I'm like, well, why don't I? I do love real estate, so I should own some of it. And this is an easier way, these ETFs, to get exposure. Okay, so switching over to Chapter 3 then, I I hurriedly went on past inflation (laughs) over to Chapter 3. And this one is just on like kind of the stock market history, but it is interesting. It's interesting to see it from his perspective as uh, he's looking back from the early 1970s, because now we know what has happened since then, and then to use some of what his advice is to To when you're looking at stock market history, because we all like to look back, right? We all like to say, "Oh, this is like 1929. Oh, this is like 1987. This is just like the dot-com boom and then bust. And or, oh, this is 2007 all over again. And then someone puts out this chart that like mimics the 2007 S and P 500, and then puts this like arrow saying we're here right before like the big crash, and that's what coming next and all of that. But he talks about how you really can't look at the past to determine the future. It gives you some clues and some ideas about how you handled those events and what maybe you could do differently going when it happens again in the future, but it doesn't really give you clues about when it's going to happen again in the future. So he does kind of give a history of the secular bear and bull markets. And he talks about how from 1900 to 1929, that was basically a secular bull. He doesn't really call it a secular bull. I'm calling it that. But that was the bullish market then. Then 1929, we all know what happened then, through 1949 was the bear. And by 1949, he talks about how people hated stocks because there were some rebounds, big big rebounds in that market period But like we saw in the last decade um, before the Great Recession, you get these peaks, but then it falls again and then does not break out into the new highs. So that's when you get the secular type of bear behavior. Then from 1949, when everybody's hating stocks, to 1972 was another big bull. But he talks about in the book, because remember, the book is from early 1970s, whether or not the market might have peaked in 1968. And um, interestingly, there was basically a multi-year bear market that started in Around 1971 or so, and um, did not break out again until the big bull market starting in 1982. So he was kind of predicting that maybe the market had peaked there and it could get a little rough in the near future. And it turns out he was right. So he does talk about the corrections that happen within the bull markets as well, because there were two corrections from 1949 to 1972, but they were quickly reversed. And we've seen that in this current bull market that we're in, we've had, we saw it just in December of 2018. That was a pretty big correction. Um, And then that one quickly reversed within a couple of months. Basically, we were back up to new highs. So that is common behavior in the secular bull markets. You you do have these pullbacks, but the stock market just continues to rebound quickly and then take out those former highs. That's kind of its characteristics in a secular bull market. Then he talks about PE ratios and how those can give you some clues. And a lot of people talk about it right here Um, At our market highs, but he talks about how in June 1949, when everybody was hating the stocks, the S and P 500 P/E ratio was 6.3 times, so that would be normal at the lows, um, and like when everybody's like you know throwing in the towel is when it's the cheapest. But by March 1961, it was trading at 22.9 times, so you'd think again by 1961, then with it that expensive that that would be the peak. But it wasn't because it continued to go on. He's, again, talking from the early 1970s. And so that secular bull did blow off those expensive valuations for quite a number of years. He also looked at the dividend yields. So in 1949, it was at 7%. Again, everybody had abandoned stocks. They were cheap. Those yields were up. But by 1961, when it was at 22 times, they were just at 3%. So those are some of the signs you can use to look back, but it's not going to tell you the timing because... It's obviously 1961 was not the peak of that bull market. It lasted years. So if you were like, I'm out here, when the valuations got really high, then you lost out a lot of years of investing there um, with good investment returns. So he talks about how a smart investor should never forecast the future by what has happened in the past. And um, then there's certain like key things that we all do, right? So using growth to explain high or non-existent valuations that happens in every bull market. Um, It did in the 1980s and 90s. It is happening right now. A lot of the growth investors, we've seen it with say Beyond Meat. Oh, who cares that it's trading at, you know, 300 times or whatever. Um, We've seen it with some of the recent IPOs, Uber, Lyft, some of these that are not making money that we don't know if they ever will make money. Uh, So, but people are buying them because of the growth component, right? But that has been used over and over again throughout all of stock market history, basically. And a couple other phrases to look out for like new world order, We've heard that in 1999, New Paradigm. That was in the... Um, that was a famous article in New York times about the housing market, talking about how housing prices would never fall. And that was in about, I think, 2006 or 2007. They wrote that article about Florida. This is a new paradigm for the housing market. Well, none, it wasn't. And another of my favorites, it's different this time. So, um, Graham says, he asks, and I'm quoting him here, can such heedlessness go unpunished? If you're like saying all this, think, oh, growth will find a way. And, you know, oh, who cares about the actual business and whether or not they're making any money? He's asking, can this kind of heedlessness, go unpunished? And obviously his answer would be no, eventually it will be. So he talks about how stocks are not worth buying at any price. And then um in the updated part of the version, they, they do go into 1995 to 1999 and that stocks were up on average during that short five-year time period, 20%. That's the best returns in the stock market history over that short period of time, consistently 20%. And even in 1998, the NASDAQ itself was up 100%. So why wouldn't we all get in, right? And we did. That is easy money. That is like a no-brainer. Just get in, write it, All of that. But you have to know that it's probably not going to last. So Graham did um, talk about uh, buying the rule by the rule of opposites, uh, that rule is that the more enthusiastic investors get about the stock market, and especially if they think it's going to last for years and years, maybe decades, then they're probably, that's kind of a warning sign that uh, they're probably going to be wrong in some some capacity, probably kind of soon. So by the end of 1999, so many people were certain that that stock market bull would keep running. And again, why not? They just got 20% a year for the prior five years. It was super easy. So total, total market uh, peaked on March 24th, 2000, even though the NASDAQ peaked prior to that, I think it was March 9th, March 10th, one of those days. But the total market peaked on March 24th, and it was $14.75 trillion. That's what it was worth at the time. But by October 9th, 2002, 30 months later, it was worth only $7.34 trillion. That's 50.2% less just 30 months later. So everyone was so certain this would keep going. And we had those books like Dow 36,000. And there were multiple books like that. That's the most famous one because this is what happens at the end of bull runs. Everyone believes that it will continue. And then we all turned bearish and we all thought, no, stocks are bad and they're gonna be awful for years, decades. It's don't buy them. All this happened in the early 2000s. But some of the rally that we saw into 2007 did bring some more investors in. That turned out to be a fake rally in the bear market and the secular bear, and uh, then we had the Great Recession and the big stock market downturn there. So um, these things, this is why he talks about the history. There is a history of these things, but you can't really um, time it based on what we have know happens in the past. All we can say is we know that these cycles will repeat, but it's unclear when. So these are just a couple of good things to keep in mind while you're watching what's happening with this current, what I believe is the secular bull market that we're in. Um, Usually the secular bulls can last anywhere from, um, the shortest I think was five five years, although some people don't count that one as a secular bull, but we'll say 11 years was the, the shortest. Um, But the longest was the huge 1982 to 2000 secular bull, 18 years of great returns. So these are, again, some things to keep in mind when you're looking at the stock market and keep that inflation issue in mind, too. And um, I'm going to go into what the next couple chapters talk about because now he's going to get into, you know, how to find value stocks and all of that. But I know many of you have questions right now about value stocks because with these market gyrations, a lot of the hated value stock sectors, so to speak, energy, retail, a couple other areas... They are really getting hammered now, and some of them are dirt cheap. I mean, I used to think 10 times was pretty cheap in this kind of market, but we're talking it's pretty easy now to find five, six, seven times um, earnings, and again, we have to look and see are these value traps or not, what's happening And so I thought I'd take a look at a couple that I'm getting questions on just recently because they've plunged down. And are these super cheap right here? Should people be nibbling? Can they go cheaper? Of course they can. And now I feel like we can apply Ben Graham's, at least what we know so far, are parts of his outline, um, even though we haven't gotten to the, the nitty gritty on those chapters yet. But I am going to apply his main overall question, which is how much? how much am I paying to own this company? And that's good to ask right now, now that some of these stocks have come way down um, because some of them do seem pretty juicy here. Okay, so I'm gonna start with a couple of the retail or apparel makers, let's just call them. They do apparel and accessories to some extent, but um, a couple of these have really taken on the chin. They're approaching five-year lows here. First one is PVH. Ticker is PVH. They own Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger. Um, they license out a, a lot of their items, so like watches and shoes and things to other manufacturers. One of them is G3 Apparel, is one of their co-partners. That's another one I'm just about to talk about too. I'm gonna talk about both of them. But PVH, trading at seven times right now, has a peg of just 06 it's supposed to have like close to double-digit earnings growth again this year and next year. So those earnings are not in a decline, not yet. But the the shares again are trading near five-year lows have just plunged down. They haven't reported yet. And they rarely report anything in between earnings seasons. So people get super depressed when it when retail is down, especially apparel. And so with this guys, because they're not saying anything, everybody's just racing for the exits. Um, they're reporting the week of Labor Day. I'm not sure we have the exact date yet, but that's when it's get on the schedule. So you need to be tuning in. I'm not touching any of these until I hear what they have to say. <laughs> they are providers of uh, product to Macy's, which ha- did not report uh, good numbers. I haven't drilled down into their report yet but I'm going to to see what was working for them what isn't they have a lot of different parts to their business um uh, they got men's women's you know kids They have handbags, they got beauty, they have jewelry, they have some furniture, all that stuff. So, um, was it stuff, was it Tommy Hilfiger not doing well at Macy's? Was it G3's Donna Karen or DKNY that wasn't doing well? We don't know yet. So, um, I'm gonna, I need to drill down into that. But Uh, some of this seems really overdone on some of these. I own G3 in my own personal portfolio. I have for several years, I have dollar cost averaged as it fell. The last time it got this low, uh, near these five-year lows, I did buy some more, but now it's fallen again (laughs) below that level. Um, but I'm waiting for them. Their ticker is G-I-I-I, I guess it is, G3. I, I, I. Uh, They are also reporting the week of Labor Day, I think the day after PVH usually. So I'll be tuning in to both of their conference calls. But G3 has a, some of its own brands in addition to doing the licensing for like a PVH. Like I said, it has the Donna Karen brand, which... Um, and the DKNY, which it's growing. It has Carl um, Lagerfeld. That's been huge for them. It has a couple other like retailers that it owns, including Wilson's Leather. Although they were shutting a whole bunch of those. Those are at the outlet malls mainly. Um, then they have Villabriquin. Probably saying that wrong. It's the French, uh, French style swimsuit guys. And so they have their hands in a lot of different stuff. Now people are freaked out about the new tariffs going on. That will be an issue for both of these companies on the conference call. And PVH also has big business in China. And what is that consumer doing? Now last quarter, thought we'd find out from PVH, but it was good. Both Calvin Klein and Tommy, which is big in China, had really solid numbers but has that weekend i don't know the stock chart is telling us people think it has but we will see so and what will happen to these earnings estimates will they be cut we don't know that yet either so again i'm on the sidelines just a couple more weeks for these until we see but right here looking pretty darn cheap at these levels. Uh, G3 does not pay a dividend. I wish they did, but they don't. PVH pays one. It's just 0.2%. It's pretty much almost nothing, but better than nothing, I guess. It's something. But yeah, these two, I know a lot of people are watching. Keep these on your watch list. I'm also keeping Macy's in my watch list, but I feel like those estimates are going to be cut. It's going to have some value trap issues going on there. And um, so that might not be the place to go even with their big dividend. Yeah. I'll probably have more about them and other retailers because some of the other ones are getting hit hard on future episodes. And another one that people have asked me about and I took a look at is Goodyear Tire. The ticker there is GT. They have a PE now of just 7.7 and their dividend yield is 5.4% here because these shares are down 44% year to date. They're at new five-year lows. They are obviously getting hammered as well. Um, but I took a look at these estimates. So this, they have reported, this is a little bit different than the others because these estimates have been cut. So for 2019, the, um, consensus has gone down to $1.56 from 201 just three months ago, and they made $2.32 a year ago. So that is an earnings decline of 32%. The, Analysts believe that it's going to be a little bit better in 2020, but they have been cutting those estimates as well. They got a little bit too um, optimistic maybe before this last report, and so they had to cut those back. So four of those estimates have also been cut. They're looking for $2.18 now, but that's down from two sixty-five. So that is a gain of 39% versus the now fifty-six that they're looking for this year. But I don't like it that the analysts are looking for next year to also be weaker than they anticipated now some good things are happening for goodyear in their business the raw materials uh, that were up big are now deflating that's helping them they have done some restructuring in germany to save some costs they are doing a us restructuring plan um They did see weak demand in Europe in the last quarter, but they expect that to moderate in the second half of the year. So some things are not as as grim as like what the estimate cuts and everything is uh, projecting. This is a Zax number five, strong sell right now because of the estimate cuts and all the analysts are in agreement that it's gonna be lower (laughs) than what they had before. So that's why you get the five, which is the short-term recommendation. But going to Ben Graham's uh, analysis, at least his main question, how much? How much am I paying for this? Well, I'm paying 7.7 times right now and that's pretty cheap, right? For what's happening here. Yes, the estimates are being cut. So a little bit of a value trap there, but I do like it that they are expecting it to rebound in the second half of this year and a little bit better outlook into 2020. Um, So I do like that, but can these shares go lower? For sure, because take a look at that chart. It's pretty brutal there and it just keeps getting hammered down. But that's why as value investors, when everyone else is rushing out, we have to start taking a look around how much, what is the business? Because member Ben Graham says you own the business, not that chart. You're not owning the stock ticker. We are owning the actual tire business here. Is it as bad as what that chart seems to indicate? Doesn't look like it to me. Um, and we have this dividend yield to kind of help with some of it. But it's all about going to be about timing That's why I do like dollar cost averaging in my own portfolio because it takes away a little bit of the pain as it continues to slide. And I always say stocks are the only thing that people don't like to buy when they go on sale, right? It's the only thing we say no it's 30% off. Why do I, no, I can't buy that here. Everything else, we love it. We like race to it, even with 20% off. I was just in a Bed Bath & Beyond here in Chicago. They're closing some of their stores, remember? And they were closing this one and I didn't know. And I went there to just go buy some like garbage bags or something. And I walk in and I see like store closing, you know, everything's on sale. And immediately I'm like, oh, it's on sale. But they're only doing 20%. off of everything in the store. They're not taking any coupons or anything, but I already get a 20% coupon in the mail. And I was only buying this one item that I was getting my 20% off on with the coupon. And I know some people see that as still, oh, it's on everything, which normally you don't get in the coupon for Bed, Bath & Beyond, but the place was gutted. Like people are like running in there basically still, even though the sale had been going on for a while. Like the shelves were already empty. People were buying like the weird shaped salt and pepper shakers for some strange reason (laughs) because they're 20% off, right? Like that's human nature. Like we like a sale, and but we don't when it comes to stocks. So Goodyear down 44% year to date, That's the sale right here with that P.E. at 7.7 times. But doesn't mean it can't go lower if uh, market sentiment goes lower. So good value investors keep these things on their list. Watch those estimates so that you try to avoid some value traps. Make sure you look at the fundamentals of the business because this is what we own. We're going to own the business, not the ticker, and um, keep an eye out, listening on these conference calls. And when you think like it's absurd, <laughs> like some of this stuff, I have been looking at all of these tickers, these three, and even just saying like that's crazy. Like who's paying? you know, why is it this slow? And when you have sentiments like that, you know, you know, as a value investor, your gut is telling you that if this is absurd, that's a good time, right? So start nibbling on some things. You, you know, you don't have to go all in with any cash you have on the sidelines. You can do it slowly, of course. Um, that's what I like to do. I do these small amounts in And um, I like to get them on sale. So some things are looking pretty juicy here. Like I said, I do own G3 apparel. I have not re-added to this position yet, but I'm like considering it here, waiting to hear about the fundamentals. So um, keep those things in mind. And some of our next podcasts, if these market conditions continue, could get interesting with some more real good value examples while we're you know, discussing the intelligent investor. It's like perfect timing, I have to say, because I was a little worried about finding some value stocks while I was reading this book. But right now, it's not the case. So value investors rising again out of the ashes here to get some good stocks. So let me recap the tickers again on this uh, podcast episode. We talked about gold. If you want to own just the physical gold through the ETF and not have it in your closet... You can own GLD, that's the ticker for the one that owns the physical gold. Then the REITs, a basic REIT ETF is the Vanguard Real Estate, VNQ is that ticker. Then we had uh, PVH, which is just PVH, G3 Apparel is G-I-I-I. We had Goodyear Tire. It's GT. I did talk about Macy's. I think everyone knows that ticker is M, but I'll throw it out there. Um, And I will, like I said, be talking about some more value stocks in the coming weeks. So you don't want to miss a single episode as uh, we continue with the Intelligent Investor and some tips out of it. So be sure to get us. You can subscribe right on Spotify. We have Value Investor Podcast is there and you can get us on uh, Apple Podcasts as a standalone show and we're on SoundCloud. But you have to search for us under Zach's Market Edge there because we're under two for one uh, deal on SoundCloud. But be sure to get us somewhere and I'll see you again next week with some more value stocks.